Hello, and welcome to Intelligence and Society. This is a series of lessons that focus on how cases of espionage and subversion are reflected in American popular culture. Your host is Dr. Mark Selinsky, author and 40-year veteran of the United States intelligence community. Intelligence and Society is a product of Kensington Security Consulting, a firm that brings education to national security. The material in these lessons does not express the official position of any agency in the United States government. And now, today's lesson. Elizabeth Bentley, Clever Girl. Hi, Mark here, and welcome to Intelligence and Society, a product of Kensington Security Consulting. In this lesson, we will examine the torturous life of Elizabeth Bentley, who shocked America when she confessed to a hidden life of Soviet espionage. She held several monikers, including Clever Girl and my favorite, the blonde bombshell from Vassar College. Her bombshell status is open to dispute, I'll let you judge, but not the impact of her revelations on Soviet espionage on American society. Her verified disclosures of a vast Soviet spy network shook American counterintelligence out of its complacency and directed it towards exposing and undermining Soviet intelligence and active measures in the United States. As we will see, her revelations to Congress in 1945 laid the groundwork for congressional investigations into the Soviet penetration of the U.S. government and the motion picture industry. So, who was Elizabeth Bentley? Well, she was born of genteel New York stock in 1907 and was raised by Republican Episcopalian parents. Her parents, particularly her mother, advocated for the poor, but both parents died prematurely before 1925. The Soviets would give her the code name Clever Girl. And she was clever enough to earn a half-scholarship to Vassar College and continue to Columbia and the University of Florence for graduate work. Later in life, she reminisced about the, quote, humanistic education at Vassar. It made her, in her words, a complete pushover for communism. At Vassar, she was a mediocre student earning low grades, but this was at a time before grade inflation. A Vassar classmate described her as a, quote, kind of a sad sack. After Vassar, she studied in Italy in 1933, where she found passion. Mussolini was firmly in power, and Bentley was excited about this passion springing from the Gruppo Universitate Fascisti. While she was in Italy, she shed her New York Republican upbringing and tasted social and political radicalism which she embraced. She also enjoyed breaking the rules, and she'll do that the rest of her life. Her advisor at the University of Florence was a leading anti-fascist professor and provided her romantic mentorship, too. Under the influence of this professor, she switched her ideology from fascism to communism. This was not that unusual. After World War II, many East Germans became ardent communists as we will see in future lessons. Now, before the war, some prominent left-oriented intellectuals 
shifted between the dominant authoritarian philosophies of the day and between their parties, too. Joseph Goebbels and the Nazi head of the People's Court, Roland Freisler, moved from communism to national socialism. Mussolini had his political origins in left-wing populist politics. Elizabeth Bentley returned to Columbia in 1934 to finish her master's degree, but did not pass the examinations. So she had the misfortune of searching for a job in New York when there were very few available in that Depression period. She joined the American League Against War and Fascism and the Communist Party of the United States, the CPUSA, and she remained in the party for two years. The party offered her a tight-knit of friends and comrades who partnered in this world hidden from outside forces. Each member of the party held secrets with others, which created an unconventional, sometimes intimate bond. Bentley futilely searched for the emotional intimacy she lacked and would lack her entire life. She also searched for physical intimacy, which she received from men in her circle of communists. Many of the communists believed in free love that was unconstrained by Victorian and bourgeois moralism which certainly appealed to the hormone-driven Elizabeth. Enter Golos. Yakov Numanovich Razin was born in 1889 in the Ukraine to Jewish poor peasants. He became a committed communist and an officer in the NKGB. This is the predecessor to the KGB. In the United States, he used the alias Golos, which means voice in Russian. Golos lived in the United States for years, and he grew to understand the nuances and the idiosyncrasies of American culture. He worked with Bentley at World Tourists, a Soviet friend company. Soon, they became lovers, even though Golos had a wife and children in the Soviet Union. One commentator is convinced that both fell in love with each other. Others speculate that he needed to promote Soviet interests and used her. Golos likely spotted vulnerability in Elizabeth and love-bombed her to bring her under his control. This certainly fits with Soviet craft then and Russian craft now. He probably saw the risks of sending such a flighty personality on dangerous courier missions. But he calculated that he could control her, and he did unlike his successors, who unsuccessfully tried to rein in the fiercely independent Miss Bentley. Bentley continued to work part-time at Columbia University's Italian library, but soon she was fired because of her connection to fascism, not communism. Golos was forced to register as an agent of the USSR under the new Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA which is the topic of future lessons. And now the FBI was on to him. Golos trained Bentley to avoid detection. She varied her travel and took several cabs. She would leave the cab several blocks from her destination and walk the remaining distance, zigzagging between blocks and department stores. She would meet in parks or in hotel lobbies, restaurants, places like that. 
Her handlers would claim that she became sloppy about her tradecraft as a courier. Now, in all fairness, she met with many people, had to memorize many names and street addresses, meeting places, and had to be constantly on guard. It's a tough job being a courier. Elizabeth first began using code names in student circles at Columbia. Now, long out of college, she had different alienas, aliases or code names. She called herself Helen or Myra or Myrna or Mary. Bentley never made copies of the documents she received from her sources. This would make verifying her claims somewhat difficult, in fact, very difficult. When Bentley revealed the vast network of Soviet spies to the FBI, the agents were initially reluctant to believe her. She had no proof. We will see that another American agent who served as a courier to the Soviet Union, Whitaker Chambers, photographed purloined documents in case he needed them. And as we will see, he did need them. He kept them in pumpkins. But back to Bentley. She had no copies, and so she relied on her memory. Sometimes her memory was sharp. She's an intelligent woman. Sometimes it faded, wasn't. Sometimes she was drunk. Tradecraft, Sloppy Lizzie. In the 1940s, Bentley shuffled between Washington, D.C. and New York to receive documents from high-level American communist spies. She usually traveled every two weeks, and there were many trips and many places she went to. Some of the people stand out. William Remington, who worked for the War Production Board at the time. Another one was Nathan Gregory Silvermaster, who was a Russian-born bureaucrat who did not pass much information or intelligence to Elizabeth, but whose true value was in his connections to the rest of the group. The group also allegedly included, and almost certainly included, Harry Dexter White, the Undersecretary of the Treasury, who was one of the architects of the post-war economic system, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. During her confessions, she identified almost 50 communist agents operating in the United States, which would lead to a network of over 150 spies that included 37 federal employees. She met a man named Julius, who fit the description of Julius Rosenberg. This would be used in the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Elizabeth's testimony that the CPUSA was intimately tied to the Soviet Union was revealing. It was a key and damning disclosure because it helped shatter the myth that the CPUSA acted autonomously without the direction or financial help of the Soviet Union. In 1943, Golos suffered a heart attack and died. The following day, Bentley met her new handler, Bill. Bill Yitzhak Akhmarov, the leading non-official cover NKVD operative in the United States. The relationship became toxic immediately after Akhmarov made demands on Bentley, which she brushed off. She thought he patronized her because she was a woman. In October 1944, Elizabeth was given yet a new handler, Joseph Katz. One of the most active NKB agents in the United States, she didn't like him or Earl Browder, the leader of the Communist Party of the United States. 
Her prickly personality did not help her maintain amiable and productive relationships with the Soviets. In early 1945, an emotionally and financially drained Bentley began to drink heavily. This degraded her already declining performance as a courier. The Soviets became increasingly worried that this barfly would spill her secrets, and they were right. They considered killing her to keep her quiet. But in August 1945, she moved to New Haven, Connecticut. She went to the FBI, and on November 7, 1945, began to confess all. It was too late to kill her now. At first, the FBI thought that she was a scatterbrained drunk. <laughs> well, you could imagine. However, after investigating her claims, they realized that most of her stories were likely correct. They alerted Hoover, who became very concerned. Throughout 1948, Elizabeth became the FBI's star witness in a series of committees and grand juries. Some of her recollections were imprecise, but she offered facts to allow the FBI to puzzle together a fairly complete picture of the networks. Here she is testifying to the HUAC. We were getting information from the Army, particularly the Air Corps, from the Treasury, from the State Department, from the OSS, from the CIAA, the Rockefeller Committee, from the OWI, or Manpower Commission. I think that about covers it, Senator. There was also one of the great face-offs between accused Soviet spy William Remington and Elizabeth Bentley. Now, Remington presented himself as an all-American boy with movie star good looks. This upper-middle-class Ivy League graduate had access to War Department secrets, which he passed to Bentley. He perjured himself in testimony and was sent to jail, where he was murdered. Here is Remington responding to Bentley's claims. I am not and was not a communist. I never divulged to her any secret or confidential information. Miss Bentley and I were introduced through my mother-in-law and friends who are communists. Miss Bentley probably assumed that I too was a communist. I am no longer associated with those relatives. The information which I did give to Miss Bentley in several conversations with her during 1942 and 1943 was public information available to any reporter. Bentley also revealed elements of the Rosenberg ring. The Rosenbergs were executed. Harry Dexter White succumbed to heart attack during the hearings and died. So, four persons in her communist circle died. In another lesson, we will discuss high-profile Soviet agents who passed information to her. There were also other very important spies who testified before HUAC, but they lacked some of the melodrama of the Elizabeth Bentley show. Were her claims about Soviet espionage correct? By and large, yes, they were. The Venona decryptions, these were the decryptions of cable traffic between Moscow 
and the Soviet embassy in the United States. They would later vindicate her claims and confirm that nearly everything she said of substance was effectively true. Life after espionage. Elizabeth Bentley had a moment of fame that she enjoyed. She was the center of national attention, and people sought her out for interviews. She often relished this moment because they gave her the attention she always needed. But her fame faded quickly, and her speaking engagements dried up. In 1951, Bentley published an autobiography, Out of Bondage, though to whom or to what she was bonded remains unclear. Later, she became a Catholic school teacher with the help of her friends in the anti-communist community to support herself. Throughout the rest of her life, she would fade into obscurity and continue her descent into alcoholism, from which she died in 1963. Bentley's revelations energized the FBI to target the Soviets. During the war, the FBI focused on Germans and Japanese, and they relegated the Soviet Union to the back burner. As you can imagine, they had more pressing issues with Japanese and German espionage. Bentley's spilled secrets eviscerated Soviet espionage apparatus, and Moscow never recovered. The Silvermaster and Perlow groups were destroyed, and other skilled, experienced, and well-placed agents took cover. Soviet officers who ran the agents took diplomatic cover, and many returned to the Soviet Union, never to come back to the United States. Finally, Bentley's information forced the hand of the Truman administration to take Soviet penetration of government agencies seriously. By any standards, Bentley was the top three or four most important defectors from the Soviet Union. Her testimony before Huak rattled the nation and would be a dramatic prelude to further investigations of Soviet influence. Yet, as historian Catherine Olmsted notes, 11 prominent college textbooks on American history discuss Whitaker Chambers, but do not mention Bentley. Historians debate why history has largely abandoned the case of Elizabeth Bentley. Maybe we'll have some answers later. Popular culture. So, how did Elizabeth Bentley fit into popular culture? She became a target of the dominant media when her defection from communism was made public. Snickering and sarcasm began immediately, and her physical appearance became a target. She was bestowed with the derogatory or sarcastic monikers we discussed earlier. Perhaps the historian Earl Latham expressed the familiar image as, quote, a woman with the imagination of a neurotic spinster. But generally, Miss Bentley was simply ignored. For 50 years, there were no published scholarly or even journalistic biographies to her life. To my knowledge, there's been no doctoral dissertations about her. By the time she died, she was largely forgotten, a relic of a more innocent age when revelations of American communists were shocking. By the late 1950s, this shock had long worn out. Many Americans were still sympathetic to those who were accused of being communist. We saw this on the lesson on HUAC and blacklisting. 
This was certainly the case with the Hollywood entertainers. Some professors conceded that Elizabeth Bentley was honest and accurate, but not many rushed to exonerate her image. She was simply forgotten. But her search for credibility that eluded her in life was granted to her decades after she succumbed to the effects of her drinking and loneliness. Only in her grave did she receive a complete vindication and validation for her claims of the vast Soviet network throughout the United States government. The release of the Venona Codes proved her claims were accurate, perhaps not every single detail of every claim was without mistake, but most disclosures were largely accurate, and many, many were entirely accurate. Books. So Miss Bentley was not forgotten entirely, and will not be forgotten, because there are two solid biographies of her. Catherine Olmsted's Red Spy Queen, and Lorne Kessler's Clever Girl. Catherine Olmsted is a professor of history who studies the cultural and political history of the United States since World War I. She is prolific and is published on some of the world's most prestigious university presses. The Cold War historian John Earl Haynes credits Olmsted's Red Spy Queen as a scholarly book with a full academic apparatus and which is based on extensive original archival research. Now, this is very high praise for Haynes, who is a world expert on American communism. You will notice that his name pops up often in commentaries about the early Cold War period in the lessons in our course. There are many things Haynes likes about Red Spy Queen. He sees it as well-researched, and an objective account by a historian who concluded that Bentley was not a fraud or a fabulist on key issues. Yes, she embellished some of her biography a bit, but she did not lie about those whom she accused of espionage. She certainly paints a dark picture of Elizabeth Bentley's personality, but she concludes that Bentley told the truth about Sylvie d'espionage in the highest echelons of the United States government. Olmsted's scholarly work verifies Bentley's claims of Sylvie d'espionage. She also objectively brings light to the unintegrated nature of Bentley's personality, her impulsive decision-making, often reckless risk-taking, and cloying demands for emotional and physical intimacy. Olmsted believes that she was different from some of the other defectors, from the Soviet cause, in that Bentley never really had her heart in communism, while others, particularly Whitaker Chamber and many others, did, where they were absolutely committed communists. Bentley, on the other hand, never really believed in the dialectic materialism uh, or the lionization of Joseph Stalin. Remember, she went from fascism to communism and then to American patriotism. Haynes hailed Red Spy Queen as a welcome indication that some in our academy, given irrefutable evidence, are not afraid to face the facts about Soviet espionage in America. Also, historians 
at the CIA liked the book. More specifically, Michael Warner, a historian writing for the CIA publication Studies in Intelligence, praised it. He did say that Olmsted could have cast the Bentley case in a broader, larger context of American efforts against the Soviets. Nonetheless, Warner acclaims Olmsted by saying that thanks to her, now we have the thread that ties together Bentley's charges were both substantially correct and almost entirely unsubstantiated by any positive evidence until the declassification of the Venona cables in 95, and those were the Soviet Moscow diplomatic codes. Kessler's Clever Girl. Clever Girl also uses archival material, particularly FBI files. It contains less original material than Olmsted's book, has an abbreviated and limited citations, and it is intended for the non-academic audience. Still, Hayne liked the book, and so did I. There are several established professors of the early Cold War period who, at last count, cast Bentley as unreliable. Professor Ellen Schrecker refers to her in her 1998 book. This is important because this was three years after the release of the Venona Codes. The book was on the McCarthy era as, quote, melodramatic, unstable, alcoholic woman. Schrecker underscores the initial FBI assessment of her as a slightly hysterical woman. In his influential 1978 book, The Great Fear, the British writer David Cote put it more simply, Elizabeth Bentley was a liar. So these new biographies by Olmsted and Kessler will likely alter the historical landscape considerably. No longer will writers be able to dismiss Bentley's testimony so cavalierly. Part 3, An Insider's View. So, what are my views? As far as Elizabeth being a blonde bombshell, I'll let you decide. She periodically was a blonde, but the bombshell claim is a bit more dubious. She may have been plain, but as a young woman, she was statuesque, and from what I could tell from the photographs, not an unattractive child. She did not publicly bill herself as a blonde bombshell or a shapely blonde in a form-fitting black dress. These titillating descriptions are media creations. There's an adult movie actress who goes by the name Elizabeth Bentley that came up in my Google search. I don't know why she selected that name. Maybe it's a stage name. Maybe it's a real name. Maybe it's some other name. But I'm curious to know why of all the possible names out there, she chose Elizabeth Bentley. Perhaps it's a real name. Back to the real Elizabeth Bentley. Her many dalliances with men may have been efforts to relieve, if only briefly and temporarily, her unremitting loneliness. She also likely had a healthy appetite for sex. Please remember that in the 1940s and 1950s in America, many women were expected to guard their chastity until their wedding night. That didn't always happen, of course. But women were supposed to be discreet. There was an allowance for swinging celebrities whose wild antics captured the headlines. Tallulah Bankhead, a contemporary of hers, this wild stage actress of the 1930s had a large following, but 
Good girls were not given this broad social license before the 1960s. For example, Judith Copland, a contemporary Soviet spy, was besieged with questions about her sexual activity when she was arrested. We'll talk about this case in an upcoming lesson. I have given the issue of Miss Bentley's alleged hypersexuality some attention here because her detractors used it to cast her as a lonely, sexually unsatiable spinster whose testimony could not be trusted. Critics of J. Edgar Hoover and Roy Cohen insinuated that they could not be trusted because they were homosexuals, or gays, as they were called in the parlance of the day. Bentley's antagonist cast her as the town punch, which in my view is simply unfair. Sad sack. I don't know about her sexual body count. I don't know if it was high by the standards of today or yesterday. I don't care. But I do see her as a pathetic and tragic actor in the greater drama of American communism. She was an emotionally tormented woman whose idiosyncrasies and plain looks made it difficult for her to establish and maintain a monogamous and long-term relationship. She suffered from emotional aberrations and hiccups. We discussed that, and it hurt her relationships with men. But it was also devastating foible in the espionage business that requires constant calm. Like so many people with fractured personalities, she made a series of decisions that hurt her. After reading the books we discussed, I feel sorry for her. She was a red spy queen and clever girl. She was smart, but not focused on what she did. She was certainly intelligent and earned a place in prestigious universities. She never excelled, or in the case of Columbia, did not complete her degree. She chased after many men, but could not hang on to any of them. She looked for a cause that would give her life meaning. For a while, she found it. But why did she flip from communism and betray those whose secrets she handed over to the FBI? Eh, perhaps it was a sloppy retaliation for perceived abandonment and rejection. Please notice her performance on Meet the Press, in which she explains her defection from the Soviet espionage now, have you given any thought as to how we can attract those spies, so they'll not attract them, but make them break with their rings? Well, you're speaking then of, of Russian agents, Russian nationality, is that it? That would be Russian agents and also some that were, uh, well, in, the case, in your case. I mean, there, at some time or other, there, there might have been some inducements made to you to break away. No, I happen to be one person who walked in cold to the FBI. No inducements were given me. Uh, you have no information that the FBI knew that you were a courier or a spy? No. Would you have broken earlier had you been given inducements, do you think? No, because I, uh, the way I looked at it, I was doing it for idealistic reasons. And the reason that I broke with the, with the Russians was because they tried to bribe me. Now, had the FBI come <coughs> and said, well, we'll support you if you'll talk, that, that would have been the last straw. I wouldn't have. Notice what she said, I had ideological reasons, but the Russians tried to bribe me. How strong could her ideology have been? Her parents died young, and then Golos died. Elizabeth Bentley did not have an integrated personality. 
and periodically she erupted. It may be that she broke from communism because she saw it for what it was and how it's devoured its most loyal adherents. A number of people, Soviet agents, did this, particularly in the mid to late 1950s when revelations about what Stalin, what Stalinism was came out. Regarding the two books we cited above, Olmsted and Kessler's, I recommend them both for your bookshelf. Buy the books and keep them there. Olmsted treatment is, as of this writing, the definitive account about this sad sack spy queen. A book I have not read is a novel inspired by the Bentley-Golos relationship. Karen Tanabe wrote, quote, A Woman of Intelligence, which the Washington Post called Captivating, a bold historical novel. So why is there no movie about Elizabeth Bentley? There is no movie of which I'm aware. There is undoubtedly much drama that could be teased out. But movies about American communists tend to be hostile to the FBI and congressional investigations, as well as to blacklists. Bentley was one of those who fingered Julius Rosenberg. This may be the reason why popular culture has been unfriendly to her. True, she ratted on her associates and friends. But who were her associates and friends? And what kind of friend would be a traitor and a spy for Joseph Stalin? I would suggest to you that they were the rats. And now for the fun part. So, I have some ideas about casting a movie, if Hollywood is interested. First, who would star as Elizabeth? There are a number of attractive, statuesque women who could play emotionally tortured women who are intelligent but unfocused. Jennifer Lawrence and Margot Robbie come to mind. Both beauties would have to put on weight and make efforts to make themselves less physically attractive. Actresses generally move in the opposite direction. They try to lose weight and pretty themselves up for the stage and the audience. But Elizabeth Taylor, with striking looks, made herself appear older and less appealing to play Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a dramatic tale of a very toxic relationship. Her expanded waistline and smudgy makeup projected the image of an angry and pathetic middle-aged woman raging against life. Emily Blunt and Amy Adams would be good, too. Frances McDormand is skilled and expert in playing emotionally frazzled females, and I like this picture of her, so I nominate her for the role. And the name of the movie? I will go with Red Spy Queen. What about you? What is the final word for Elizabeth Bentley? The great game, that she was one of the great players in the great game, and this was the battle between the Cold War rivals, the United States, and the Soviet Union. She played both sides. Her defection shut down the Soviet espionage system in the United States for some time. Her confessions began a trial that led to the convictions of Alger Hiss as well, perhaps, as the Rosenbergs, and she helped to define the partisan political warfare of the early Cold War. Dr. Olmsted concludes that far from being naive and flighty, quote, the real Elizabeth Bentley, 
had been a strong woman who defied limits, laws, and traditions. Unquote. I would agree, though I would say she was a bit flighty at times. And I would also say that I think she should be given the Medal of Freedom, which was given to fellow Soviet spy turned American patriot Whitaker Chambers. But Chambers is the subject of a future lesson. I'm going to leave you with some questions, and I will thank you for your time. Until next time, for Kensington Security Consulting, thank you. So now we'd like to leave you with a, a few questions here. All right, the first question is this. Do you think that history has been fair to Elizabeth Bentley? Do you think that she was given the full measure of credit? Do you believe, as I believe, that she should be given a posthumous Medal of Freedom? This happened before in the case of Whitaker Chambers, who, in my judgment, wrote one of the most compelling pieces on communism and the attraction of communism in the United States. And we have a lesson that deals extensively with this man. Do you think that there may have been an element of sexism? I don't like the term, but let's just say double standards. Do you think that if had she been a man, history would have judged her the way history has judged her until some of the pieces we discussed in this? And finally, the most intriguing question for me is this. If Hollywood decides to make a movie on this poor tortured soul, whom would you suggest plays the lead? And I'd really like to get an answer from you on that. So thank you very much. And until our next lesson, goodbye from Kensington. Thank you for listening to this lesson in Intelligence and Society. We invite educators to use these lessons in their courses if they would like. This was brought to you by Kensington Security Consulting, where we bring education to national security.